this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. And now, Thriller Thursdays on the Mutual Audio Network. The following audio drama is rated PG for parental guidance recommended. San Francisco in the Roaring Twenties is a city that hasn't quite shaken her old self. Scratch the surface of civilization and out pumps the hot, chaotic blood of her Barbary Coast days. Sometimes somebody needs help bringing order back to this chaos, and that's where I come in. I work for the Federated Detective Agency. Sixty-three Audio presents Adventures of the Federated Tech, created by Pete Lutz and Mark Slade, and dramatized from stories by Dashiell Hammett. This time, the life of an innocent woman hangs in the balance, and only a letter can save her if we find it in time. Tonight's story, Zigzags of Treachery, Part 2, adapted for audio by Pete Lutz. Our story so far, the Federated Tech has been hired by attorney Vance Richmond to prove that his client, Mrs. Greta Estep, did not, as the police think, murder her husband, a prominent San Francisco doctor. The tech figures that the best way to do that is to find the letter the doctor sent to someone just moments before he took his own life. So far, that search has been fruitless, but our hero has met up with more players in this deadly game. A crook named Jacob Ledwich, a strange little man named John Boyd, and the dead doctor's apparent first wife, Edna. When we came to the end of part one, the tech and his fellow operative, Bob Teal, had been watching Ledwich carry who they thought was Boyd out of his house and into his car, then drive away. The big man came back alone a couple hours later. Neither Bob nor I went home that night, but slept in the Laguna Street apartment. Good morning! I come bearing groceries. Hand him over. I'll whip up some breakfast. How do you like your eggs? However you make them, my dear. Aha, uh -huh, very funny. Is there bacon? Of course. I picked up the examiner, too. Here you go. Thanks. I'll look over the headlines with one eye while I keep the other on our friend Jake's building across the street. All righty. Mandy, can't you hear me gently callin'? Mandy, while the moonbeams are a-fallin'. Come out, won't you, honey, do? Be my little Mandy, and I'll be your handy, Andy, oh, you. Hey, look here. What is it? Listen, Park Murder Mystery. Early this morning, the body of an unidentified man was found near a driveway in Golden Gate Park. His neck had been broken, according to the police, who say that the absence of any considerable bruises on the body 
as well as the orderly condition of the clothes and the ground nearby, show that he did not come to his death through falling or being struck by an automobile. It is believed that he was killed and then carried to the park in an automobile to be left there. Boyd, I betcha. And at the morgue, a very little while later, we learned that we were correct. The dead man was John Boyd. He was dead when Ledwich brought him out of the house. He was. He was a little man, and it wouldn't have been much of a stunt for a big bruiser like Ledwich to have dragged him along with one arm, the short distance from the door to the curb, pretending to be holding him up like you do with a drunk. Let's go over to the Hall of Justice and see what the police have on it, if anything. Ogar, this dead man found in the park. Know anything about him? Well, hello to you, too. Not a damn thing except that he's dead. How'd you like to know who he was last seen with? It wouldn't hinder me any in finding out who bumped him off, and that's a fact. How do you like the sound of this? His name was John Boyd, and he was living at a hotel down in the next block. The last person he was seen with was a guy who was tied up with Dr. Estep's first wife. You know, the Dr. Estep whose second wife is the woman you people are trying to pin a murder on. Does that sound interesting? It does. Where do we go first? This Ledwich, he's the fellow who was last seen with Boyd, is going to be a hard bird to shake down. We better try to crack the woman first, the original Mrs. Eastep. There's a chance that Boyd was a pal of hers, and in that case, when she finds out that Ledwich rubbed him out, she may open up and spill the works to us. On the other hand, if she and Ledwich are stacked up against Boyd together then you might as well get her safely placed before you tie into him. Hmm. Yeah. Good thought. Either way, I don't want to pull him in before night. I got a meat set up with him, and I want to try to rope him first. Where are you going, Bob? I'm going up and keep my eye on Ledwich until you're ready for him. Good. Don't let him get out of town on us. If he tries to blow, have him chucked in the can. Where's this C-step dame camped at? The Montgomery. Dick Foley's been keeping tabs on her. Mrs. Eastep is still in her room. She had breakfast sent up. Hmm. What's she having? Shh. Well, I'm hungry. What about mail or phone calls? Nothing. No telegrams either. Okay, Dick. Good work. Know where Stacy is? His office. Good morning. Have a seat. What could I do for you, gentlemen? We're going up to talk to this Estep woman, and maybe we'll take her away with us. Will you send up a maid to find out whether she's up and dressed yet? We don't want to announce ourselves ahead of time, and we don't want to burst in on her while she's in bed or only partly dressed. Certainly. I'll be back in a few minutes. Stay here, please. I'll have coffee sent in. I hope he sends Danish, too. Stacy kept us waiting about 15 minutes and then told us that Mrs. Estep was up and dressed. We went up to her room, taking the maid with us. What is it? It's the maid. I just want to... You again? Haven't you bothered me enough? Ooh. From headquarters. We want to talk to you. Agar flashed his buzzer and placed his foot where she couldn't slam the door on us. We started moving ahead then, so there was nothing for her to do but retreat into the room, admitting us. Which she did with no pretense of graciousness. What is the meaning of this? How dare you storm in here? Why, I... Mrs. Estep, why did Jake Ledwich kill John Boyd? Why did... uh, What? What? Exactly. 
why did Jake kill him last night in his flat and then take his body to the park and leave him? The East Dev woman was saying anything she could think of to buy time, so I wasn't paying attention to her words. Her face told me the story I wanted to hear. Alarm at Ledwich's name, fear at the word kill, but the name John Boyd brought only bewilderment. This is absurd. The idea of your coming in here and breaking down my door. I'm a peace-loving woman. These expressions weren't as plain as billboards, you understand, but they were there to be read by anyone who had ever played poker, either with cards or with people. What I gathered from her face was that Boyd hadn't been teamed up with her, and that, though she knew Ledwich had killed somebody at some time, it wasn't Boyd and it wasn't last night. It couldn't have been Dr. Eastep. Who, then, had Ledwich killed before Boyd? These things are flitting through my head while Mrs. Eastep is saying, well, the very idea of the two of you pushing in this way with your badges and your guns. The words had been fairly sizzling from between her hard lips, but the words themselves didn't mean anything. She was talking for time, talking while she tried to hit upon the safest attitude to assume. And before we could head her off, she had hit upon it. Silence. Mrs. Eastep. Mrs. Eastep. We got not another word out of her, and that, when it comes down to it, is the only way in the world to beat the grilling game. The average suspect tries to talk himself out of being arrested, and it doesn't matter how shrewd a man is or how good a liar. If he'll talk to you and you play your cards right, you can hook him, can make him help you convict him. But if he won't talk, you can't do a thing with him. And that's how it was with this woman. Three hours of it, sir. Three beautiful hours of it we gave her, Ogar and me, without rest. Yes. Mrs. Edna Eastep strikes me as a smart woman. Yeah, she's smart, all right, and stubborn. Any advice? What does Sergeant Elgar wish to do? Well, we're still in her room at the Montgomery, and he wants to take her down to the hall. We don't have anything on her, but we can't afford to have her running around loose before we nail Ledwich. Sergeant Elgar is also wise. You searched her room previously, did you not? You might want to wish to return after taking the lady to the Hall of Justice and do a more thorough search. It seems you'll have ample time under the circumstances. Will do. Thanks. At the Hall, we didn't book Edna Eastep, but simply held her as a material witness, putting her in an office with a matron and one of Ogar's men who were to see what they could do with her while we went after Ledwich. We'd had her frisked as soon as we reached the hall, of course, and as expected, she hadn't a thing of importance on her. Then Ogar and I went back to the Montgomery and gave her room a thorough overhauling and found... Nothing. Are you sure you know what you're talking about? It's going to be a pretty joke on somebody if you're mistaken. Come on, let's go. I'll meet you at 6.30 and we'll go up against Ledwich. Okay. What are you doing in the meantime? Heading over to update my client, Mr. Richmond. You've got to do something. I've just come from the hospital. Glenna Eastep is on the point of death. A day more of this, two days at most, and she will... Mr. Richmond, listen. I've got some things to report. I swiftly gave Richmond an account of the day's happenings and what I expected or hoped to make out of them. But he received the news without brightening and shook his head hopelessly. But don't you see that that won't do? All that's no good. I've got to have... Well, a, a miracle, perhaps. Suppose that you do 
finally get the truth out of Ledwich and the first Mrs. Eastup, or it comes out during their trials for Boyd's murder, or that you even get to the bottom of the matter in three or four days, that will be too late. If I can go to Greta and tell her she's free now, she may pull herself together and come through. But another day of imprisonment, two days, or perhaps even two hours, and she won't need anybody to clear her. Death will have done it. I tell you, she... I left Vance Richmond abruptly again. This lawyer was determined to get me worked up, and I like my jobs to be simply jobs. Emotions are a nuisance during working hours. At a quarter to seven that evening, with Ogar down the street and with me back in my shabby duds from the day before, I rang Jacob Ledwich's bell. Hello, Wisha. In his front room, we sat down and talked and smoked and sized one another up. He seemed a little nervous. I think he would have been just as happy if I had forgotten to show up. About this job you mentioned? Uh, oh, uh, sorry. But it's all off. Uh, for the present, at least. I guessed from this that my job was to have taken care of Boyd. But Boyd had already been taken care of for good. Now he was trying not to appear too anxious to get rid of me, and I was cautiously feeling him out. Want a drink? I got some Canadian stuff. Sure. Well, here's how. Getting the sense that we were getting nowhere, I said, Jake, you took a big chance putting that guy out of the way like you did last night. I'd meant to stir things up, and I succeeded. A gun came out of his coat. Firing from my pocket, I shot it out of his hand. Ah! Now behave. Looks like a great stunt, this shooting a gun out of a man's hand, but it's a thing that happens now and then. As Ledwich sat with wide staring eyes, rubbing his benumbed hand, I beat out the fire around the bullet hole in my coat, crossed the room to where his revolver had landed, and picked it up. I started to eject the bullets from it, but instead I snapped it shut again and stuck it in my pocket. Then I returned to my chair opposite him. An elbow, huh? Yeah, you guessed it. I'm a detective. You know, a man oughtn't to act like that, pulling a gun. He's likely to hurt somebody. You ain't a city dick, are you? No, I'm with the Federated. What are you after, then? Where do you come in on it? The second Mrs. Estep, Greta. She didn't kill her husband. You're trying to dig up enough dope to spring her? Yes, scoot back. You're making me nervous. How do you expect to do it? He wrote a letter before he died. Well... Just that. What's your interest in the man who died last night? It's something on you. It doesn't do Greta Eastep any direct good, maybe, but you and the first wife are stacked up together against her. Anything, therefore, that hurts you two will help her somehow. I admit I'm wandering around in the dark, but I'm going ahead wherever I see a point of light, and I'll come through to daylight in the end. Nailing you for Boyd's murder is one point of light. You'll come out all right, if you use a little judgment. What's that supposed to mean? Do you think that you can nail me for Boyd's murder? That you can convict me of the crime? I do, but I wasn't any too certain. I repeated my assurance. I do, and I'm satisfied to go to bat with what I've got on you and what I can collect between now and the time you and your accomplice go to trial. Accomplice? Ha! That would be Edna. 
I suppose you've already grabbed her. Yes. <laughs> You'll have one sweet time getting anything out of her. In the first place, she doesn't know much. And in the second, well, I suppose you've tried. And you found out what a helpful sort she is. <laughs> so don't try the old gag of pretending that she's talked. I'm not pretending anything. <laughs> I'm going to make you a proposition. You can take it or leave it. The note Dr. Restep wrote before he died was to me. And it's positive proof that he committed suicide. Give me a chance to get away. Just a chance. A half hour start. And I'll give you my word of honor to send you the letter. I know I can trust you. I'll trust you then. I'll turn the note over to you if you'll give me your word that I'm to have a half an hour start. For what? Why shouldn't I take both you and the note? If you can get it, do I look like I'm some kind of sap who'd leave the note where it would be found? Do you think it's here in the flat, maybe? I can't think of any reason why I should bargain with you. I've got you cold, and that's enough. Eh, if I can show you that your only chance of freeing the second Mrs. Eastup is through my voluntary assistance, will you bargain with me? Maybe. I'll listen to your persuasion anyway. All right. I'm going to come clean with you. But most of the things I'm going to tell you can't be proven in court without my help. And if you turn my offer down, I'll have plenty of evidence to convince the jury that these things are all false, that I never said them, and that you are trying to frame me. That part was plausible enough. I've testified before juries all the way from the city of Washington to the state of Washington, and I've never seen one yet that wasn't anxious to believe that a private detective is a double-crossing specialist who goes around with a cold deck of cards in one pocket, a complete forger's outfit in another, and who counts that day loss in which he railroads no innocent to the Hoosgow. There was once a young doctor in a little town a long way from here. He got mixed up in a scandal, a pretty rotten one, and escaped the pen only by the skin of his teeth. The state medical board revoked his license. In a large city, not far away, this young doc, one night, when he was drunk, as he usually was in those days, told his troubles to a man he met in the dive. The friend was a resourceful sort, and he offered, for a price to fix the doc up with a fake diploma so he could set up and practice in some other state. The young doctor took him up and the friend got the diploma for him. The doc was the man you know as Dr. Eastup and I was the friend. The real Doc Eastup was found dead in the park this morning. That was news, if true. Ledwich went on to say that while today there's a regular cottage trade in phony diplomas, back then they were harder to get. While he was looking for one, he ran across a woman he used to work with whose name was Edna Fife. Edna had married the real Dr. Umber Estep, and after starving with him for a couple years in Philadelphia, she made him close up shop and go into the bunco game with her. By the time she met up with Ledwich, the Esteps were doing a good business in swindling people out of their money. When she told me this, I offered to buy her husband's medical diploma and other credentials. I don't know whether he wanted to sell them or not, but he did what she told him, and I got the papers. I turned them over to the other doc, 
whose real name don't matter, who came to San Francisco and opened an office under the name of Humbert Eastup. The real Eastups promised not to use that name anymore, which wasn't much of an inconvenience for them since they changed names every time they changed towns. Ledwich said he kept tabs on the young doctor and collected a regular rake-off from him. After a year or so, the new Dr. Eastep got married, and between his practice and his investments, he began to accumulate quite a hefty roll. But Eastep, to his credit, refused to be bled, refused to pay Ledwich anything more than his usual percentage. Ledwich wasn't happy about it, but he couldn't kill the goose that laid the golden egg. For nearly 25 years, he got his regular cut and not a nickel more. This goes along, as I say, for years. Then a few months ago, I learned that he's cleaned up heavily in a lumber deal. So I make up my mind to take him for what he's got. See, when you're bleeding a guy, you get a pretty fair idea of what goes on in his head and what he's most likely to do if certain things should happen. For instance, I knew that he'd never told his wife the truth about his past. I also knew that he kept a gun in his desk for the purpose of killing himself if the truth ever came out. He figured that if, at the first hint of exposure, he wiped himself out, the authorities would hush things up on account of his good reputation. And his wife, even if she learned of the truth, would be spared the shame of a public scandal. Yeah. Now, I can't see myself dying just to spare some woman's feelings. Uh, but the doc was a funny guy in some ways, and he was nutty about his wife. So that's the way I had him figured, and that's the way things turned out. Tell it to me slow so I can follow it. <laughs> you ain't so dumb. It was simple enough. I got hold of real Eastups. It took a lot of hunting, but I found him at last. I brought Edna to Frisco and told the man to stay away. Everything would have gone fine if he'd done what I told him. But he was afraid that the woman and I was going to double-cross him. So he came here to keep an eye on us. But I didn't know that till you put the finger on him for me. Yeah. I drilled Edna until she was letter perfect in her part. Then I sent her to call on the doc. She asked him to perform an illegal operation on her daughter. He, of course, refused. Then she pleaded with him, loud enough for the nurse or whoever else was outside his office to hear. And when she raised her voice, she was careful to stick to words that could be interpreted the way we wanted them to. She ran off her end to perfection, leaving in tears. The nurse fell for it. Yeah, that Edna, she's a whiz. But then... I sprung my other trick. On the day after her call, I had a forger friend of mine make a mock-up of the front page of the Evening Times. I substituted it for the actual front page and swapped it out for the doc's paper after the newsboy made his delivery. This fake paper had an article claiming that state authorities were investigating information that a prominent Frisco surgeon was practicing under a phony license. I was trying not to look too interested, but my ears were cocked for every word. At the start, I'd been prepared for a string of lies, 
but I knew now that Ledwitz was telling me the truth. Every syllable was a boast. He was fairly bloated with vanity, the vanity that fills the crook almost invariably after a little success and makes him ripe for the penitentiary. The doc read the paper, all right, and shot himself. But first, he wrote and mailed a note to me. I didn't figure on his wife's being accused of killing him. That was plain luck. I figured that the fake piece of the paper would be overlooked in the excitement. Edna would then go forward claiming to be his first wife and his shooting himself after her first visit with what the nurse had overheard would make his death seem a confession that Edna was his wife. Though I can see it. Edna had really married an Umber Estep all those years ago, and the 27 years that had passed since then would do a lot to hide the fact that that Dr. Umber Estep wasn't this Dr. Umber Estep. The way it played out couldn't have been better. Everybody bought the idea that Edna was the legal wife. The next play would have been for Edna and the real wife to come to some sort of agreement about the estate, with Edna getting at least half of it, and nothing would be made public. But when the cops grabbed the doc's wife and charged her with his murder, I saw my way into the whole role. All you'd have to do was sit tight until she was convicted, and the courts would turn over everything to Edna. Because I had the only evidence that could free the doc's wife, the note he'd written me. When he read that fake piece in the paper, he tore it out, wrote his message to me across the face of it, and sent it to me. So the note is a dead giveaway. But I didn't have no intention of publishing it know-how. So, everything up to this point is like clockwork, right? Smooth as oil on water. Yeah, so that's the time, naturally, that the real Umber Estep picks to gum up the works. Yep, your little friend who called himself John Boyd. Yeah, he shaved off his mustache, put on some old clothes, and come snooping around to see that Edna and I don't run out on him. As if he could have stopped us. After you put the finger on him for me, I brought him up here. I was going to salve him along until all the cards had been played. But we got to talking and wrangling, and I had to knock him down. He didn't get up, and I found out his neck was broken. There wasn't nothing for me to do except take him out to the park and leave him. You didn't tell Edna about it, did you? She seemed pretty surprised that a man named John Boyd had been killed. How would she have reacted if I'd said his real name? Well, she never had no use for him. But you can never tell how a woman will take things. I figure she'll stick, though, now that it's done. So what's the point of all this, Jake? So you'll know exactly what you're up against. Maybe you can prove that Edna wasn't the doc's wife. You can prove that I've been blackmailing him. But you can't prove that the doc's wife didn't believe that Edna was his real wife. It's her word against Edna's and mine. It all boils down to this. You can't free Greta Estep without my help. Turn me loose and I'll give you the letter the doc wrote me. It's the goods right enough. In his own handwriting, written across the face of the phony newspaper story, which ought to fit the torn place in the paper the police are supposed to be holding. And he wrote that he was going to kill himself, in words almost that plain. That would turn the trick, no doubt. But don't make me laugh. I'm going to put you away and free Greta Estep both. Yeah, go ahead and try it. You're up against it without the letter, and you'll never find it. Ledwitch was right. 
his scheme, that cold-blooded zigzag of treachery for everybody he'd dealt with, including Edna Estep, wasn't as airtight as he thought. But as Vance Richmond had said, time was not on our side. If I was going to do Greta Estep any good, I had to move quick. Law or no law, her life was in my fat hands. Don't move. Mr. Richmond, it's me. How's Mrs. Estep? Weaker. I talked with the doctor a half hour ago and he... Get her over to the hospital and be where I can reach you by phone. I may have news for you before the night is over. Is there a chance? Are you... All right. I'll do this much for you, Jake. Slip me the note and I'll give you your gun and put you out the back door. There's a bull on the corner out front and I can't take you past him. Your word on it? Yes. Get going. Yeah, it's Jake. Put a boy in a taxi with that envelope I gave you to hold for me. And send him out here right away. Yeah, yeah. There was nothing surprising about his unquestioning acceptance of my word. He couldn't afford to doubt that I'd play fair with him. And also, almost all successful bunco men come in time to believe that the world, except for themselves, is populated by a race of human sheep who may be trusted to conduct themselves with true sheep-like docility. That's it. I'll go with you to the door. Suit yourself. Yeah, thanks. Here, get yourself a smoke. Here you go. Take a look. Ledwich passed the envelope to me. Inside was a piece of rough-torn newspaper. Across the face of the fake article he'd told me about was written a message in a jerky hand. I wouldn't have suspected you, Ledwich, of such stupidity. My last thought will be... This bullet that ends my life also ends your years of leisure. You'll have to go to work now, E-Step. So the doctor had died game. I slipped the death note back into the envelope Ledwich had given me and put them in my pocket. Then I went to the front window, flattening my cheek against the glass until I could see O'Gar dimly outlined in the night, patiently standing where I'd left him hours before. The city dick is still on the corner. Here's your gat. Take it and blow through the back door. Remember, that's all I'm offering you, the gun and a fair start. If you play square with me, I'll not do anything to help find you unless I have to keep myself in the clear. Fair enough. Listen, will you do me one favor I didn't put into the bargain? What is it? That note of the docks is in an envelope with my handwriting and maybe my fingerprints on it. Let me put it in a fresh envelope, will you? I don't want to leave a broader trail behind than I have to. Sure. He took a plain envelope from the table, wiped it carefully with his handkerchief, put the note in it, taking care not to touch it with the balls of his fingers, and passed it back to me. As I put it back in my pocket, I had a hard time to keep from grinning in his face. That fumbling with the handkerchief told me that the envelope in my pocket was empty, that the death note was in Ledwich's possession, though I hadn't seen it pass there. He'd worked one of his bunco tricks on me. I snapped, beat it, to keep from laughing in his face. Yep, it's empty. He double-crossed me, all right. That wipes out our agreement. I leaped to the window, slid it wide open, and leaned out. Ogar saw me immediately. I swung my arm in a wide gesture toward the rear of the house, and he set off for the alley on a run. 
I dashed back through Ledwich's flat to the kitchen and stuck my head out of an already open window. Hold it right there, Ledwich. Police. You're not going to take me, copper. I walked slowly down the stairs to join Ogar, slowly, because it isn't a nice thing to look at a man you've deliberately sent to his death, not even if it's the surest way of saving an innocent life, and if the man who dies is a Jake Ledwich, altogether treacherous. How come? He got out on me. We must have. I stooped and searched the dead man's pocket until I found the suicide note, still crumpled in Ledwich's handkerchief. Ogar was examining the dead man's revolver. Look it. Maybe this ain't my lucky day. He snapped at me once and his gun missed fire. No wonder. Somebody must have been using an axe on it. The firing pins broke clean off. Is that so? I asked, just as if I hadn't discovered when I first picked the revolver up that the bullet which had knocked it out of Ledwich's hand had also rendered it harmless. All right, well, I've got to go make a telephone call. Ladies and gentlemen, you may have noticed that this story centered around a letter that somebody had in his possession that was used to clear somebody else of a crime. Well, we feel it would be a crime not to show you a letter we have in our possession, which was written by our author himself to the editors of Black Mask Magazine and published in the same issue in which this story appeared. Listeners, we are proud to present Mr. Dashiell Hammett. The four rules for shadowing what I gave in zigzags are the first and last words on the subject. There are no other tricks to learn. Follow them, and once you get the hang of it, shadowing is the easiest of detective work, except perhaps to an extremely nervous man. You simply saunter along somewhere within sight of your subject, and barring bad breaks, the only thing that can make you lose him is over-anxiety on your own part. Even a clever criminal may be shadowed for weeks without suspecting it. I know one operative who shadowed a forger, a wily old hand, for more than three months without arousing his suspicion. I, myself, trailed one for six weeks, riding trains and making half a dozen small towns with him. And I'm not exactly inconspicuous, standing an inch or so over six feet. Back in the day, before I decided that there was more fun in writing about manhunting than in that manhunting, I wasn't especially fond of shadowing, though I had plenty of it to do. I worked under one superintendent who needed only the flimsiest of excuses to desert his desk and get out there on the street behind some suspect. Sincerely, Dashiell Hammett, San Francisco, California. Listening to Zigzags of Treachery, Part 2, Episode 2 of Season 2 of Adventures of the Federated Tech. Our cast consisted of the following players Pete Lutz as the Tech, Noah Diamond as Attorney Vance Richmond, Jason D. Johnson as Ogar, Frank Guglielmelli as Mr. Stacy, Jeff Moon as Dr. Estep, Jerry Aleph as Edna Estep, 
Mark Kalita as Dick Foley, Jordan Brewster as Bob Teal, Paul Arbisi as Ledwich and Hammett's voice, Rachel Pulliam as the maid, and Joe Stofko as the old man. The theme and some incidental music was composed and performed by Dr. Ross Bernhardt. Zigzags of Treachery was written by Dashiell Hammett and was published in the March 1st, 1924 issue of Black Mask Magazine. Mixing and mastering were performed by Daniel French of Fishbonia Sound Design. This program was adapted by and produced under the supervision of Pete Lutz. This is Darren Rockold speaking. Please join us next time when the Federated Text says... A print shop owner is killed, run down by a car, and some foreign money is found in his hand. My client sends me out to solve the case, but how much can I find out in 60 minutes? Be with us for our next episode, One Hour, coming soon from 63 Audio. Hey, Billy, why do you look so down? Aw, Dad, I got a computer, a PlayStation, and a barn full of iguanas, and I'm still bored. <sighs> Gee, Billy, when I was your age, I would read lots of stories in pulp magazines. Oh, with stories of weird adventure and fantasy, horror, satire, and lots of action. Wow! That sounds great, Dad! Yeah, I sure wish there was something like that right now. <laughs> there is Daddy-O! Who are you? I'm Dr. Mary Von Rocksprocket, host of the Twisted Pulp Radio Hour, and now there's... Yeah? Twisted Pulp Magazine! <laughs> What's that, Doctor? Why, it is a return to greatness! Available on all your digital devices. That is what it is. Look. Whoa, Dad, this looks awesome. Exciting and, dare I say it, very unwholesome. You definitely have that right, my good man. Ha <laughs> Thanks, Dr. Mary. My pleasure, Billy. And just between you and me, I am not sure that this man is really your father. Bye. Dad? Uh, just read your Twisted Pulp magazine, Billy. Twisted Pulp magazine, available in dark alleyways behind meth labs everywhere or at digitalvaudeville.com. That is D-I-G-I-T-A-L-V-A-U-D-E-V-I-L-L-E.com. 